If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go to John chapter 6 with me this morning. John chapter 6. My last couple of Sundays preaching, I dealt with David and Goliath in 1 Samuel. And uh, it is really one of those famous passages of Scripture, no matter where you're at in the Bible knowledge, most people know about David and Goliath. But now we switch gears to John chapter 6. And we're going to deal with a passage here that most people have heard of before. And so, again, I'm going to look at a passage that likely everybody here has read. You've heard about it. You've probably heard sermons on it. If you were definitely around church growing up, you went to Sunday school or you went to a Christian school or you went to something, you probably held, uh, heard about this in some way. In fact, it's called the feeding of the 5,000. And the title of my sermon, though, for this is not the feeding or some cliche on that. I actually want to say this. The feeding of the 5,000 is a miraculous sign of who Jesus really is. And I want you to keep that with you. Because the feeding of the 5,000 statistically is the best known New Testament story, second only to the birth and death of Jesus Christ in pop culture. This event the feeding of the 5,000, is the only recorded event in all four Gospels as the crucifixion. You have the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you have the crucifixion in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And only these two events do you have in all four Gospels. And if you go even outside these, these uh, walls of our church building, and you go to those who either call themselves non-Christians or they're non-church, you can usually get them to guess a few facts about the feeding of the 5,000. You'll probably find just about anybody that's heard about it. If you're interested to read all the different accounts and you take notes, you'll find it in Matthew 14, verses 15 to 21. You'll find it in Mark chapter 6, 32 to 44. You'll find it in Luke 9, 12 to 17. And in our passage here, Matthew, or John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Now, the record is a true record, though it's a supernatural event. And it's recorded accurately by four different witnesses. I really do encourage you to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on this. You see, Matthew and Luke give us just the facts. They're all about the facts. Here's what happened. Here's how it happened. Mark focuses on Jesus' compassion. Mark is the one that says that Jesus looked at them with compassion in his heart as sheep without a shepherd. But John, here in our passage, takes the event and actually puts it in its significance as a sign of who Jesus is. Now, I say all of that because tragically, for all of you here this morning, if you don't do it, you are tempted to do it, Actually, very few people actually get what Jesus is doing in this passage or why John records it. Most who have heard about this have heard about it in Sunday school. Probably in my day, it was always done with the flashly flannel graphs, or sometimes you might have even seen a puppet show. And you've heard about this, and you've probably been told that if we share our meager meals with Jesus, then we watch him multiply it. You probably have heard some version of that. Some might go so far as to say it's a test of faith for Philip and the disciples. But I want to submit to you this morning that to take only the miracle of Jesus here, recorded in all four Gospels, 
and boil it down to nothing more than the moral of the story just doesn't seem to fit the importance and power of what's being shared. Many of the commentators I read this week said, next to the crucifixion, this is the most powerful display of the godness of Jesus in all the New Testament. Now, I want you to let that percolate for a minute because that's probably not where most of us would go if we were asked, where is Jesus most God in the Bible? Today, I want us to step back. I want us to step up and learn from Jesus through John the Apostle what this account is really meant to mean and what kind of response you and I are to have. After all, remember, let me give you the big story again because we're coming back to John. John's purpose statement, the reason why you read this book, John doesn't give you till the end of his letter, the end of this book, right? Most authors will tell you, here's why I'm writing. John doesn't do it till the very end, right? In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. This sign, this feeding of the 5,000 was written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I have to tell you, I'm going to fight the urge to just retell the account, right? I'm going to try and fight my, my extrovertedness to fill this with drama, to captivate your imaginations with my storytelling abilities. Now today I really want us to work at seeing what we're supposed to see, to learn from this passage what we are supposed to see. I don't know about you, but let's be honest. Have you ever been guilty of assuming what something meant? I see a lot of heads nodding. Have you ever watched that game show, Family Feud? Anybody want to admit that? I see a few hands willing to admit it. I love it. I love watching Family Feud because so often... Family Feud illustrates this. When the host is reading out the question and the very excited contestant buzzes in before he completes the question. Have you ever seen that out of sheer excitement? And then what is so often the result? A very confident person with who a minute ago was convinced they knew the answer is now expected to complete the question and give the right answer. But when faced with the reality to get it right, what happens? So often they cave, right? They guess terribly and often hilariously wrong. If you want to see it, go YouTube that sometime. You'll find it's great laughter. When the host actually completes the question, it's completely different from what they thought and they were sure they were right on. So today I'm asking you to wait. I'm asking you to listen. I'm saying let's get to the end of it before you assume the meaning I'm asking you to put this passage into the whole of John, not just assume you know what it's about. In fact, as I said earlier, I'm going to try not to spend a lot of time reliving the event, but rather see what the event signifies. So let's look at John chapter 8, or sorry, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Here is the Word of God. After this, again, if you write in your Bibles, try to take note of these different little things, because that after this means something. In fact, you'll see it also at the end of beginning of chapter 5 of John, and it's important. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. He says that because that there was a city now built on the east side of Galilee called Tiberias, and it was named after one of the Caesars where he was trying to win over some things. And so he says, after this, this was done. 
And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. In verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now we get a time element. Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at a hand and lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that we, these people may eat? Huh. I love Philip. Or verse 6 tells us, he said this to test him, for he, Jesus himself, knew what he would do. But listen to Philip. Philip answered the way I think I would have. He said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little piece. <laughs> One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fishes, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was a great much grass in the place, so the men sat down, and about 5,000 in number, just of the men. And so then Jesus took the loaves and sat down, sorry, and he gave thanks, and he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Again, if you watch your Bible or you write in it, underline that, as much as they wanted. Some of you might have a translation that says, and they were fully satisfied. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, here's the result of this in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving Jesus, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew himself again to the mountain by himself. I want you to feel the emotions in this, the tension that's at play in this particular thing. So number one, a very simple outline as I draw you through it today. I want you to see, first of all, the situation of the sign. Notice the situation of it. This is a sign that shows us who Jesus is. And I said after this, right, John begins chapter 6 the way he did chapter 5. Because John wants us to see that time is passing, but he's not bound to a tight chronology. In fact, some scholars say that from the beginning of chapter 5 to the beginning of chapter 6, a 12-month period has is elapsed, that a year has gone by in between Passovers. All right? And so he's drawing more for us a picture where every passing verse and chapter, Jesus will come more and more into focus. But if you look back as well in chapter 5, it flows into chapter 6. Because in chapter 5, it ended with Jesus being challenged by the religious in Jerusalem to kind of prove that you're Jesus. And so he has this long discourse at the end of it where he says, I am Jesus. And he says, I'm better than Moses and I'm better than the prophets. And you guys should know this because you read them and you think the greatest is Moses. But I'm telling you, I'm here. And then right into chapter six is, let me prove it. So chapter five is, here's my defense. Chapter six is, here's my evidence. Let me show you this. And so there's a couple of things that I want you to see about this. You see, there's two cliches we have in our world today, right? Location, 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 and timing is everything. Notice what it says. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. 
And this large crowd was following him, and we get the reason why, because of the signs that he was doing on the sick. And he went up into the mountain, he sat down with his disciples, it's Passover, and that was what was at hand. So here you get the where, you get the when, and you get the why, all right? Where is the northeastern side of Galilee? The western side was the more populated side. Jesus has gone away from the newly formed town of Tiberias. He's basically pulling away from Judaism, away from the mass of humanity. Instead, Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee, likely close to a place called Bethsaida, which is, by the way, the hometown of Philip. So now he's gone across the sea. He's actually close to where Philip is from. Keep that in your mind. And he gives us this time reference because now he says the Passover was at hand. And I don't want you to miss these little tidbits. Because back, John tells us about three different Passovers. In John chapter 2, he tells us that the Passover was at hand when Jesus goes into the temple and he clears it out and he flips over the tables, remember that? And he declares himself to be the true temple of God. He is our true temple. Here we will meet the one who is the God of provision and of strength, showing himself better, this time over Moses and Elijah and Ezekiel. Remember that back in chapter 5. You see, Jesus talks about Moses. But John wants you and me to see that Jesus is not only better than Moses, something the writer of Hebrews talks about. He's better than Elijah. He's better than all of the other prophets. You see, according to John, Jesus is the Lamb of God. You can read about that in John chapter 129 and John chapter 136. But then he tells you why this happens. Because large crowds were following. In fact, Mark tells us where Jesus rode, went across in a boat, the Sea of Galilee, Mark tells us that the crowds of people literally ran around the Sea of Galilee. They ran around the lake to find him. And why were they following him? Because it wasn't for food. They didn't go to get fed at this point. No, remember our passage says they were there because people were getting healed of their sicknesses. They're astounded. They're amazed. They're needy. Who could heal like Jesus? And the answer was no one could. Put yourself there. As a pastor, I have to visit a hospital a lot. I have visited kids, and I've told you, I've done the funeral for an eight-day-old baby, and I've done the funeral for a 105-year-old man. And it doesn't matter if it's eight days old or 105. People are desperate for healing. Can you imagine what it would be like if we knew someone was on the island, and if you so much as touched them, or if he looked at you, or if he rubbed a little dirt on your eyes, if he could take away every disease, if he could just heal you of every ache and pain, would you not run around a lake? Would you not risk missing a meal? Would you not try and find him? Of course you would. Don't detach yourself from these crowds. We're not better than them. We'd be just like them. We'd go running after them. We'd want to know why is this often here? But I want you to look at, at this and notice what's happening. They're astonished and amazed, and they traveled all this way. So notice now, secondly, the solution that gives way for the sign. That's the situation. Here's the solution. Now, I've talked about this already. We misunderstand and misapply this passage. Too often, we turn it into a moral of the story, and we share what you, what you have story or something like you've discovered. It's so much more than that, though. Let's walk through it a bit. Notice in verse 5. Jesus, having taught them, now takes stock of the situation, okay? Remember, he looks up and he sees the people. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus has compassion on them, but don't miss something for me. 
You see, Jesus teaches them spiritually before he ever deals with the physical. I want you to realize that, right? This crowd has run around the Sea of Galilee. They are here because he heals. But what does he do? He sits down with his disciples and he teaches. Notice that he deals with the spiritual before he deals with the physical, not the other way around, which is so often how we look at things today. We're all about let's deal with everybody's physical issues. And if we get an opportunity, let's deal with something spiritual. That wasn't Jesus' M.O. He went right for the spiritual and then he would deal with the physical. And so there was no bait and switch with Jesus. It was always, here's who I am. And people came and then he would deal with things. And so this is what he does here. But notice how they do this. John, once again, is proving his point showing us that these miracles are not just miracles, they're signs. They're meant for you and I to see Jesus. Look at verse 7. He shows us ourselves as professing Christians. Because what does Philip say? What is 200 denarii? What are we going to do with this? We think the task is about our strength and not Jesus. you got to realize when he says, what's 200 denarii? Just so you all know, a denarii was a day's wages. Okay, so Philip, likely Jesus looks at Philip because Bethsaida is off in the distance. Philip is from there. So to use, uh, to illustrate what he is and who he is to the rest of the disciples, he turns to Philip, who they all know is from Bethsaida, and he says, Philip, what are we going to do? Where are we going to buy bread? Where's the biggest Costco? Where are we going to get this? All right. And Philip immediately says, look, what if I had, look, I think we got eight months worth of wages here. 200 denarii. We've got basically three quarters of a year. But how do you plan to feed 5,000 men along with whoever is accompanying them? Could be as many as 20,000 human beings a meal on eight months wages. He immediately thinks humanly. Again, let's not get proud. Have you and I done that? I put my car in for an oil change this week. And then three hours later, my phone rings, and that lovely lady on the end says, hey, Mr. Bray, we checked the brakes. They're gone. Now the bill is $1,200. What was supposed to be a $75 oil bill became a $1,300 brake bill. Do you think my gut check reaction was, well, Jesus will provide? No. I immediately started crunching the numbers trying to figure out how to anticipate this unexpected bill. I was just like Philip. We all do this. We get confronted with something. The physical's right in front of us, and we do this. But look at verses 8 and 9, which are so, again, often misquoted and misapplied. Because here we're introduced. Andrew brings this little boy, and this is where Sunday school goes wild. We all hear about this wee little boy, and if you're just a wee little boy, bring your five loaves and your two fishes, and Jesus does great and mighty things. And that, Guys, listen, this wee little boy was likely 19 or 20 years old, just so everybody knows. Right? The Greek word there means he was likely the age of David, from David and Goliath. And most people tell us David was probably 19, might have been in his early 20s. And remember what was said in the book, the boy is not the point. It's the reference to what the young man has. Andrew brings him and says, I got this guy here with five barley loaves and two fishes. By the way, two fishes is not full fish. It was basically pickled fish. It was like fish relish. It was like a little bit of relish, all right? And these five barley loaves... Five barley loaves, barley loaves, and that day was the bread of the poor. It was not wheat. It was had less gluten. It didn't digest well. For those of you that are gluten-free, you know what that's like, all right? I've tried to toast gluten-free bread. It doesn't toast, all right? It doesn't eat well. 
for all the people that try to tell me, oh, eat this, I found this beautiful gluten-free uh, whatever. No, you haven't. You haven't. You're fooling yourselves, all right? I've never met it. You know what makes bread taste good? Gluten, all right? So this was barley loaves. This was the bread of the poor. This was the bread that the poor ate, and it was known to not be a good bread. It didn't digest well. It didn't eat well. Andrew's point here in telling us this is to heighten the miracle to the point of how useless it was. Andrew basically says, look, we got 200 denarii. We got eight months wages if Philip wants to go into Bethsaida. We got a young fellow here boy, that's offered up his lunches, five barley loaves and some relish fish. What are we supposed to do? Have you ever not been in that situation where you're facing some parameter of life and you're just like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And so now Jesus has everyone sit down. It's almost like he misses all of this. He doesn't hear it in verses 10 and 11 in that grassy place because it's the spring of the year. Maybe there's these beautiful smells. The birds are singing. Creation is exploding. But here are people needy and hungry and searching and wondering. And then Jesus blesses the food. Now notice this. But what does he bless? Scholars tell us that this is likely the blessing he prayed. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringest forth bread from the earth. Notice, Jesus blesses God. He thanks God. He does not bless the food. So may we remember, as you go to your Sunday dinners, it's not about we're going to say the blessing over the food. May we bless God and give thanks for the food. That's the one we want to bless And I love verses 12 and 13 because it tells us they ate to the full and they were all satisfied. And you see, John is stressing this because it's the lavishness of the supply. These people ate as much as they wanted. All of a sudden, for the first time, people were like, this barley bread's not bad. All of a sudden, they're eating and they can take all they want. In fact, they eat so much, there's 12 baskets left over. They literally, they undo the pants or they untie the rope that holds the gown together or whatever it was they were wearing, and they let things out, and they're doing that after turkey dinner, right? Like they're doing that. We've all done it, right? And they're, they're completely full. They're completely satisfied. Guys, this is the theme throughout John. I challenge you to read it. Remember when he turns water into wine? What is it? The wine was better. It was better. Remember the woman at the well? If she would drink what he offered, she'd never thirst again. Remember? Jesus is healing. Jesus is feeding. Now this massive crowd is fully satisfied. And don't miss these 12 baskets. Because Jesus is telling us that not only can he feed this crowd... He can meet the needs of all of Israel. Those 12 baskets were likely a reminder of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's saying, no, no, no. I can meet everybody's needs. Now, can you imagine the conversation that happened around that meal? It's 5,000 men. All of their maybe wives and children, there could have been as many as fifteen to 20,000. How do you sit there and, and people are saying, what's he serving? Well, some young fella had some barley loaves and relish fish. And here it comes, and then they start eating, and they're like, whoa, this is great. Can I have some more? Oh, yeah, there's more to have. Where's that come? I don't know. Jesus blessed it, and now it's coming. You know these people had conversations because verse 14 tells us this, which brings us to the sad misunderstanding of the sign. Verse 14 tells us what I think is tragically still going on in the 21st century of St. John's, Newfoundland. 
missing the point. They see Jesus originally. They ran all the way around Galilee. Why? Because he was the healer. He could heal them from their sickness. Then at the, the lateness of the day, Jesus sees them as compassionate. He feeds them out of nothing. And not only that, but this might have been the closest thing to these people. Do you think that not some of those Jews thought, this must have been what it was like with Moses when the manna came. This must have been what it was like. Do you not think that some of these people thought about Elisha? You know, in Second Kings, Elisha feeds a hundred men with 20 barley loaves. You see, these Jews probably had all these little connections as they're eating going, these are barley loaves. Do you remember that the prophet Elisha did this? Do you remember? This, this must be like what it was when Israel was in the wilderness and manna came down from heaven. And all of a sudden they're like, wow, he's the prophet. He's the one. And don't realize, that's why that 5,000 number is so significant. Because then they said, if this is the prophet, and then verse 15 tells us Jesus perceived they would come and make him king by force. You see, in Israel terms, a, a, a 5,000 men was considered the makings of an army. So they're saying, listen, we'll be the army. We'll start this revolution. We've got the prophet. He's the healer, and he's the feeder, and he's these things. Let's take him. He'll overdo Rome. We'll have a great Shangri-La life. This will be awesome. And all of a sudden, as you've heard me say once over and over again here in this church, all of a sudden, they wanted country music Jesus. Oh, they were thrilled. Come to Jesus. You get healed. Come to Jesus. You get fed. Come to Jesus. You get your wife back, and your kids back, and your dog back, and your truck back. Because that's what happens when you play country music backwards if you didn't know. You see, they were excited about what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses told them to look for the prophet like me who will come. And so these Israelites are sitting there getting fed and they're thinking about Elisha and Elijah and they're thinking about Ezekiel and they're thinking, it's time. And my good friend D.A. Carson says, their attention was focused on food and victory, not on the divine self-disclosure mediated through the incarnate Son, not on the Son as the bread of life, not on a realistic assessment of their own need. You see, friends, let me put this into a modern way for you. Steve and I were talking about this week. I think too many people in 21st century St. John's, you want Jesus like you take Advil when you have a headache or an ache. It's nothing more than a transaction. It's not a relationship. See, I at times love my bottle of Advil. When my head is pounding, I want to know where the Advil is. When my body aches, I ache for some Advil. And I love to take in those liquid gels that make the pain go away. But you know what? Once the pain is gone, me and Advil, we're done. And I move on with my day. And too many people treat Jesus like a bottle of Advil. I got some aches and pains. Where's my bottle of Jesus? Right? I've got a marriage issue. Where's my bottle of Jesus? I got a wayward child. Where's my bottle of Jesus? Well, what about something deeper? So what are we supposed to take from this passage? Remember the last two weeks I preached about David and Goliath? What was it 
that David had that no one else in Israel had. You remember that? The whole nation is paralyzed in fear when this, 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 this Goliath comes out and no one says that, you know, they're frozen in fear. And so did David, people want to say, well, David had faith and the rest of Israel didn't. No, 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 that's not true. Everyone has faith. Everybody in this room has faith. What set David apart from Saul and his own nation was the focus or source of his faith. It was God. You see, David trusted God to deliver him, to guide him, to protect him, to provide for him. David trusted his life to God. Fast forward to the first century in our passage, Jesus is declaring the exact same thing. He's saying in this miracle, you are trusting in what I can do for you, but you're not trusting in who I am to you. That is very important. You see, Jesus was the means to an end for the crowd. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, Jesus must be the ends for those who have their faith or put their faith in him. And in this sign from God in the form of a Jesus miracle, what do you learn about Jesus? It's obvious, isn't it? Jesus is compassionate. He looks out on this crowd and he has compassion on them. Even though they don't get it, he's still compassionate. Notice he's zealous for them. He loves them. He's zealous for them. He's tired. He's weary. He knows their motives aren't pure, but he still pursues them. Notice Jesus is loving toward us. Mark tells us this about this passage. Mark actually tells us more about the love of Jesus than any of the other gospel writers. But notice Jesus is powerful. Folks, listen, don't make this a little moralistic story. Try and feed 20,000 people with five gluten-free barley loaves and some fish relish. Only the creator of the universe can do that. Multiply it, not only to give everybody food, but to fill everybody to the fullest, to where they actually say, I want no more. I'm full. I can't eat anything else. Because why ultimately Jesus is God? Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now fast forward to the 21st century. Here to us, we're admonished to see our true need. And Jesus is the only one to meet that need. Why? Because he's God. Again, Paul Tripp points out, God not only blesses us with his wisdom and the power to live according to that wisdom, but he also blesses us with grace that transforms the desires of our hearts so that we can actually find joy in living his way. What grace? That's Philippians. So what else can we take from this passage? Listen, if Jesus can create bread to feed thousands, then he can certainly save men and women in St. John's, Newfoundland. Amen? Like, that, that just needs to excite you. The old Anglican minister, J.C. Ryle, said this, He is one who has all power over dead hearts. Not only can he mend that which is broken, build up that which is ruined, heal that which is sick, strengthen that which is weak, he can do even greater things than these. He can call into being that which was not before and call it out of nothing. We must never despair of anyone being saved. So long as there is life, there is hope. Reason and sense may say that some poor sinner is too hardened or too old to be converted. Faith will reply, our master can create as well as renew. With a savior who by his spirit can create a new heart, nothing is impossible. So it doesn't matter, mom and dad, if you're praying for your son or daughter and you're wondering, what are you going to do? You keep praying because as long as there's life, there's hope. 
right? If you're wondering about that marriage or you're wondering about that job or you're wondering about something in life and you're going, I don't think I can pull this off. That's the greatest place to be. Because then you figure out, is Jesus more than just an Advil bottle? Or is he your savior? Is he your savior? This miracle sign is meant to call us to Jesus. But for us as Christians, like Philip and Andrew, it's meant to illustrate our faith and role in reaching out to others. You see, whether you've got a friend or a neighbor, a family member you care so deeply about, and yet it seems so hard. It seems like the harder you witness or the harder you love or the harder you appeal, the worse it gets. I don't know about you, but I've been Philip. I've been Andrew. <laughs> but you need to be Andrew where at least you're coming and going, I don't really have anything, but here's what I got. My favorite passage of all the New Testament is that man who comes to Jesus wanting healing for his child. And Jesus says, if you have faith, I'll heal him. And he says, Lord, I believe in you, but help my unbelief. He says, I, I, I know what I'm, I know you are, but Lord, man, when the darkness is there and I feel alone, I struggle. I struggle. And see here, Jesus is offering this to us. Jesus is showing us that he is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than any prophet. You don't think these people didn't think about Ezekiel? In Ezekiel chapter 37, God puts Ezekiel in front of this valley filled with these dry bones. And I love the humor in it because God says to Ezekiel, preach to these dead bones. And then he says, what do you think is going to happen? And Ezekiel says, the most obvious family feud answer ever. I don't know. Only you know that. And then he says, preach. And then God says that he would breathe life into these dead bones. And see, folks, listen, God didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Something you and I can't do. This is what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Folks, listen, there is nobody in this city, including yourself, that you can save. Only God does that. But you can be confident that if you will bring them Jesus and pray over them Jesus, God's promises, he'll work. But you and I got to have faith in this. This passage also offers us a view of salvation, by the way. Don't miss this. The greatest Old Testament event is the rescue of Israel from Egypt. You remember this? And the whole Passover, that's where it became a, became a thing, right? When the angel of death went through all the camp and they had to blo put, sprinkle blood, they had to sacrifice a lamb and they ate it and all that. And they, they were delivered by these 10 miracles. They were brought through the Sea of Galilee, marching towards the promised land. They were delivered. Delivered into what though? 40 years of wilderness wandering. 40 years of ups and downs where people complained and doubted, even at times turned back and turned toward other gods. Yet through it all, God was faithful. God fed the nation. God gave the water to the nation. God guided the nation. And in John chapter 6, 7, and 8, Jesus will declare, I am the bread of life, I am the water of life, and I am the light of life. You see, the purpose of this passage, this miracle, this sign, is not to get us to feed the world. We already know we are to be kind and giving and sharing and loving. The point is, Jesus is the Savior of all who long to be freed from sin and bondage. And that's what you and I 
need to realize. And so, church, our motivation for ministry is compassion. That's our motivation. Our calling to ministry is Jesus Christ and his strength. In other words, we simply bring what we have, Jesus, and we bring them to Jesus. Our provision in Christian ministry is prayer. The older I get, there's two things I have to admit. I struggle to pray, but when I do, it always makes a difference. And I cannot believe if I dare use this at the risk of offending people, how stunned I am not to figure this out. I will wrestle to pray, but when I pray, God works because that's my provision. And our boldness in Christian ministry is Jesus. It's Jesus. And so, in my conclusion here this morning, it's 2018. Our theme here at Calvary is to be Christ-like. And what does that even mean? Well, for starters, as a Christian, as a church, we must recognize Jesus as he is, not as we want him or wish him to be. Jesus is not a bottle of Advil. He's the prophet, priest, and king, the one who knows us and has come to serve us and to save us and to show us our greatest need, him. Jesus is way more than a transaction. In your life, your marriage, your family, the workplace, and school, are you willing to follow Jesus in the into the desert of life, trusting him with your life and the circumstances you might be called to face? Friends, look around you. Stop right now for a few minutes. Think about the world that you live in. We live in a world that knows that it needs. Nobody doubts that we have needs, but tragically, the world doesn't know what it needs. We look for information and we think that's going to be power, but all we've discovered is that the more information we get, the more afraid we are. That's what we've discovered. The world wants happiness and pleasure, but then when they seek it, they often end up more hurt and more unhappy. We look for safety and possessions, money, power, fame, popularity, politics, relationships, marriage, singleness, jobs. We seek and seek and seek, but we never find. And sometimes we convince ourselves that some of God's stuff will give us what we want and need only to find ourselves still wanting. Because David Platt said it best, the more we become like Christ, the more we hate sin. The more we become like Christ, the more we love righteousness. Spurgeon was the one who said, if you offered me heaven without Christ, I wouldn't want it. And if you offered me hell with him, I'd take it. That's a different saying in our pop culture world today. John wants us to see Jesus for who he is. Jesus wanted the crowd and Philip and the rest of the disciples to see who he is. And when you see Jesus, you can then truly trust him and look at yourself and you can safely admit your struggles. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to hide. You can become uh, emotionally confess your faults and sins and your needs and you can vomit up the needed repentance to the one who is God who loves you and provides for you and comes to you and forgives you and knows you better than you know yourself and he'll stay with you and protect you and give you the right perspective and give you peace and give you something and someone to hope in and trust once you really come to jesus you'll pray prayers like this one that i read last week father i'm glad you do as you please not as we beg i've lived long enough to praise you for some of the no's i've received to prayers for which i desperately wanted a yes you do all things well not all things easy but in time you will make all things 
beautiful. That's what John wants us to see in this. See, to be Christ-like, we got to see the exodus that called us, called, God has called us to. To be Christ-like, we need to put our lives into perspective. God called Israel out of Jesus, and he did so with power and miracles, taking a slave nation and setting them free. And the greater Moses, Jesus Christ, the greater Elijah and prophet, the great high priest, the great deliverer king, the great one, Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, once for all slain, has called us out of darkness and into light. But we've got to follow him into the wilderness of sanctification. You and I are going to have to walk through the desert of life towards the promised land. And we don't want to get distracted. And don't doubt. And don't turn your back. And don't turn to other gods. But when you fail, turn to Jesus. I start it with God's word and I'll finish with it. Listen to these words of Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. When Jesus is more than Advil, He's not the one just that you take when you got a headache. He's the one you come to that no matter what you face, he's better and he's going to bring you to something lasting and eternal. The feeding of the 5,000 is meant to show you not how to share our meager means. It's meant to show us how amazingly magnificent and powerful Jesus really is. Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to open up your word and read it, to share it. Lord, I, I beg that you'll help me be courageous. So often at the end of preaching, I, I really feel inadequate. I feel like maybe I overdid it. I was too enthusiastic. Lord, help me not to be apologetic for how much you excite me, how much you've changed my life. Lord, help me to never apologize for how excited I am at what you will do for every man and woman in this room. No matter what they face, they can know peace. No matter what they've done, they can know forgiveness. No matter what they struggle with, they don't have to hide. And Lord, help us to be a church that is truly loving, truly a community, truly patient and compassionate because we feel your patience and your peace and your mercy and compassion with us every day over and over again. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, may they come. If there's any running from you, may they realize it's way, way easier to run to you than from you. If there's any doubting or hurting, give them healing. Oh Lord, may Christ indeed be enough. In Jesus' name and all God's people said,